Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. San Diego selects the Midway Rising Plan for Sports Arena Redevelopment. The vote that was taken yesterday was to begin exclusive negotiations with the Midway Rising team. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A shot for flu and a booster for COVID. How to take them both safely. The big message here is if you haven't had a booster and you're more than four to six months out from earlier shots, please go ahead and get one. California launches a new reproduction rights website and a beloved Indian musical comes alive at the Old Globe. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. San Diego now has a plan to move forward with the redevelopment of the 48-acre sports arena site. San Diego City Council members chose the mayor's pick, the Midway Rising proposal. It would provide the most affordable housing of any other plan for the city-owned property. But the other developers in contention did not go down without a fight. The public testimony at yesterday's council meeting criticized the speed of the decision and questioned the expertise of the Midway Rising team to deliver on such a huge redevelopment project. Joining me is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. And Andrew, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Thanks. So remind us some of the reasons why the mayor and now the city council say they chose Midway Rising over the other redevelopment proposals. Well, it's really important to remember a bit of the backstory. The city went through a redevelopment process once before under former Mayor Kevin Faulkner. He put up this site for bids, uh, he selected a team, and then the state rejected that project because uh, Faulkner had not followed a state law called the Surplus Land Act, which basically regulates how cities can and local governments can dispose of property that they don't need anymore. 
that state law has really been motivating Mayor Gloria's actions on this property from from the beginning. So that law requires the city to offer first priority to the project with the most low-income affordable housing. And if the city does not select that proposal and goes with another project with less affordable housing, they have to provide a written explanation to the state. And that could be risky. The The state could say, well, we don't like that explanation. It's not good enough for us. And so Gloria really wanted to avoid another fiasco of the state basically saying, uh, you know, rejecting the city's decision. And, you know, so he and his staff and the council majority were just not convinced that there was a good enough reason to say no to Midway Rising. Midway Rising Development Group is actually three different companies. Tell us about them. Sure. So the first one is Zephyr. It's a development firm based in Encinitas. They'll be responsible for building the market rate housing. There's also Chelsea Investment Corporation, which is an affordable housing developer. They would be building the about 2,000 affordable housing units on this site. And then the third team is called Legends. They're a firm that most recently built the SoFi Stadium in in L.A. where the Rams and the Chargers play. uh, And they also operate several other pro sports venues. Now, it's recently been reported that the owners of Zephyr Partners gave big donations to an organization supporting Mayor Gloria's election in 2020. Did that come up in the public comment before yesterday's vote? Uh, Yes, it did. The donation was in 2020. It was $100,000 that the Zephyr CEO Brad Termini gave to an independent expenditure committee that was run by a labor union. So this committee is not controlled by Gloria. Gloria doesn't have any say over how that money was spent. And he also couldn't stop that donation from happening even if he wanted to. But yes, it did come up in public comment. And uh, the mayor's staff categorically rejected that there was any connection between that donation or uh, Brad Termini's support of Gloria's election and the selection of Midway Rising. They pointed out that there are other members of the other competing teams that also supported Gloria uh, with donations to either his campaign or committees that supported his election. So, you know, if everybody's supporting Gloria, then there's that doesn't really set apart that one particular team. And I will say that the selection of Midway Rising would definitely look suspicious if there were not a state law saying that that project should have been given the priority. If the mayor had selected another project and then that team also had members that had donated to his election, that would that would definitely raise some more eyebrows. But given that the state law really makes clear that Midway Rising was supposed to be the project the city should go with, you know, that that donation, to me at least, did not seem completely out of the ordinary. What were some of the other critiques of Midway Rising that were brought up yesterday? Well, there was one contingent of people that spoke against any redevelopment of the sports arena property. Many Point Loma residents in particular uh, drive through this area to get out of their neighborhood and reach the freeways, and they worry that any kind of intensification of the use on that land uh, will make traffic worse. There were also some suggestions that Brad Termini, that CEO of Zephyr, couldn't be trusted because of past lawsuits that will, were filed against him. Uh, the main lawsuits that, uh, that that has been referred to in the media was settled, so we can't really say whether or not it had any merit to it. And of course, litigation is very common in development. So any and all of these teams have been sued before at one point. 
We didn't hear as many critiques of the Midway Rising proposal itself. It, again, it does have the most affordable housing. It has the largest size of units, uh, the most parks and open space, and uh, one of the largest arenas out of all these proposals. But there was a concern also that they might be overpromising, that they are putting forward these big numbers of affordable housing, but they won't ultimately be able to deliver on those. I will say that is a very real possibility, but we simply can't predict the future. We won't know whether that's true until uh, the end of the due diligence phase and, and when we actually get an agreement and construction gets started. So, Andrew, what happens now? What's the next step in the process? Well, the vote uh, the vote that was taken yesterday was to begin exclusive negotiations with the Midway Rising team. So now both sides will have to do due diligence. The developers will go to the site for physical inspections. They'll be checking the soil to see how that might impact what kind of construction they can or cannot do. Uh, the city will have to do a deeper dive into the financial assumptions of the project, make sure it's not a pipe dream. And they'll have to draft a ground lease agreement. So that would include details like how much money will the city get out of this deal? Who will maintain the parks? Who will, uh, you know, will the city put any new requirements into the lease? Like, say, you know, inclusion of a childcare facility in the project. And the city expects that those talks will last at least two years, potentially two more years, so four total. And they'll also be doing a CEQA analysis, so an environmental impact report for uh, the project in its entirety. And then there's the vote on the city ballot in November to eliminate that 30-foot height limit in the Midway area. How crucial is that to this project? This project is impossible. It's completely infeasible if the developer cannot build above 30, fi- uh, above 30 feet. Um, a quick background, the ba- there was a ballot measure that passed overwhelmingly in 2020 to raise the height limit in the Midway district. That got put on hold because of a lawsuit. The city is appealing that lawsuit, and that's sort of a backup plan if the measure on November's ballot doesn't pass for whatever reason. But even if it does, that same group that sued the city once before says that it'll sue again. So, uh, you know, who knows when that issue will be resolved. But absolutely, the 30-foot height limit would kill this project entirely if it remains on the books. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. And Andrew, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Last week, the CDC approved a new COVID booster shot, which specifically targets the highly contagious Omicron variant. Health experts hope the recent approval will lessen the burden of a fall and winter surge. At the same time, officials are stressing that Americans renew their flu shots as well, leaving some with questions about the health impacts of combining the two shots. Joining me once again with a COVID update is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. And Dr. Topol, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much, Jade. So first things first, what are your thoughts on this Omicron-specific booster that was just given CDC approval? Yeah, we've been uh, able to get it here in San Diego for at least uh, the last 10 days or more. Um, And, you know, the fact is it's the only booster now. So you can't get the original uh, strain. This one, of course, is a combination of the original and uh, the BA5 spike. Uh, there's two different types, the Moderna and Pfizer. The Moderna has a, a dose of the BA5 of 25 micrograms. Um, Pfizer has 15. Uh, and so it's really important that people keep up with boosters. So if they haven't had one uh 
third shot or fourth shot, uh, it's essential that they go forward because we know it provides uh, more protection. And we're still got plenty of BA5 um, uh, out there. This this virus is really a tough one. So the main message is um, boosters, whether they're going to be better against BA5, that's the hope but at least they're going to be as good as the boosters have been throughout the, the pandemic. And so that's why the big message here is if you haven't had a booster and you're more than four to six months out from when you were getting your uh, earlier shots, please go ahead and get one. Do we know how long this booster is expected to provide elevated protection against the Omicron variant? This is really important because there was some messaging uh, that we might go for annual shots, but we don't have any data that gets us more than four to six months out from any of these shots. This one could be different, but we have no clinical data for the new booster in terms of will it prevent infections, transmission, how long will it last? Uh, These things won't be available, this data, for at least a couple few months. So uh, it's early, too early to know. There's no reason to think the boosters will work any less than prior ones, but uh, to to expect a lot more against such a tough version of the virus may be too optimistic. And, you know, there's been some recent discussion about super dodgers, uh, people who more than two years into this pandemic still have not caught COVID. What do we know about this and, and why some people have been able to really evade the virus? Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, group of people, also known as novids, that have a native intrinsic protection. Uh, Now, of course, a lot of these people have had vaccinations and boosters, and that's important. But the fact is, they could be exposed to their partner or, you know, household, everyone else gets infected, and they don't. And they all had the same uh, type of uh, vaccines. Uh, of course, some of these people had prior infection and have immunity, just they d- just don't know it. Uh, some of these people, you know, have been just very ultra cautious, living in a cave and having little interaction with other people. Or So then we get down to what about the biology that would explain it, uh, Jade? And then we have a few different pathways. There are some uh, genetic variants that seem to be protective. There are some aspects of our gut and skin microbiome that we have cross-reactivity to some of those bacteria that seem to also have some protection. And and then interestingly, some people, when they get common colds from coronavirus, they develop these really broad antibodies that can be very effective against the coronavirus and its variants. So some people just have a very uh, reactive, broad, intelligent, hyper-intelligent immune system. uh, And that would be something I wish all of us had. With flu season right around the corner, health officials are also encouraging people to stay current on their flu shots. Uh, Is it safe to combine this and the new COVID booster? Well, it's safe, but I don't know if the timing is the same. As you know, really, uh, the COVID is not so seasonal and flu is. So if you get a flu shot now, uh, it's a bit early for the flu season. You can. I mean, obviously, they're available. Whereas if you haven't had a booster six months, um, it's it's important uh, at this juncture to get one. So it's hard to make a, a, the sink here. The only thing would be is if you've had a recent booster and, and you you know October November is uh, when you start to see really the flu season get into higher gear. We don't know what it's going to be like this year. Flu vaccines aren't nearly as effective as the COVID vaccines and boosters. But if you're going to get one, uh, this might be a little bit early. Uh, And so trying to get them both at the same time, it's safe. 
and it'd be good to kind of uh, get a twofer in some respects, but uh, it may not be ideal timing-wise uh, at this particular uh, point in September. Some health experts are recommending a yearly updated COVID booster, just like the flu shot. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't buy it. Maybe this bivalent vaccine will have more durability, but we have not seen any that last more than four to six months. So why would this one be so different? I think until we get nasal vaccines or or uh, tweak the nanoparticles in the vaccines or do something in terms of broadening the coverage, the, the variant proof, until we do those things, I don't see how we're going to get the annual shot because this is not like flu. Well, there has been some recent evidence to suggest that vaccinated people are less likely to develop long COVID. What do we know about that? Yeah, that's, I think, really under uh, emphasized that one of the other major reasons to go through the boosters just keep, uh, you know, get if you're over 50 and over, get the four shots and now a fifth shot, that sort of thing. You don't want to get long COVID. And the protection, the range from the various studies uh, 15 to 70%. But it tilts much more. The more vaccines and boosters you have, it appears the better protection you have from long COVID. That is your immune system is just so revved up. It doesn't allow the virus to have that chronic uh, capability of causing inflammation. So that's a really good reason to to stay away from COVID. Don't get a reinfection. Keep up with your boosters uh, because it might even be 70% protection uh, from long COVID uh, on the basis of the best, uh, most recent report. But we don't know for sure what level that would be, uh, of course, great. Uh, but it, it's just a more incentive to, to keep your immunity up uh, and keep away from COVID. And finally, the World Health Organization uh, chief recently said in a press conference that while the COVID-19 pandemic is not over yet, the end is in sight. Do you agree with that or or are you or should there be some concern that there could be a fall winter resurgence here? Yeah, no, I took on Dr. Tedros, uh, I have the highest regard for him who heads up the WHO, but when he said that uh, today, earlier today, it doesn't go along with the data. You know, we're still the deaths around the world are still 35% higher than their lowest point in the pandemic and we also have a ways to go. And that doesn't take into account the fact there's not, there's still tens of thousands of infections every day here. Uh, we have lots of long COVID. We have one fifth of the world's deaths, even though we're only 4% of the whole world population. So we're not, uh, as a country, uh, as a region, uh, in such a great state yet. I hope we'll get there, Jade. I hope that in the weeks ahead, we just keep dropping down and have low circulating virus. And, you know, people can feel very confident about going out and about um, and not having the worries that we've had to work through. But we're not there yet. And I think, unfortunately, that gives uh, people uh, a uh, kind of unbridled un un lack of evidence for where we are right at the moment. We are not out of the woods yet. I have been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad 
including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. California has a new tool to provide information on abortion access to people both inside and outside the state. On Tuesday, Governor Newsom introduced the website abortion.ca.gov, and he's telling people seeking reproductive care across the nation that they are welcome here in California. Meanwhile, on the other side of the country yesterday, a Republican bill banning abortions nationwide after 15 weeks was introduced in the Senate. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne is here to talk about these two opposing developments. And Tanya, welcome. Thanks for having me, Maureen. Tell us about the bill that was introduced in Washington, D.C. The announcement was made on Tuesday by Republican Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina. And so his proposed bill would ban abortions after 15 weeks of a pregnancy nationwide. Here he is talking about the bill. I think we should have a law at the federal level that would say after 15 weeks, no abortion on demand except in cases of rape, incest, to save the life of the mother. And that should be where America's at. So the bill doesn't have much of a chance of getting anywhere with both houses controlled by Democrats, right? You know, it has very slim chances of advancing right now, as Democrats hold the majority of Congress. But this bill is the most prominent effort from Republicans since Roe v. Wade was overturned in June. But he vowed that if Republicans take back the House and Senate in the midterm elections, that a vote would take place on this nationwide ban. But why is Graham introducing the bill if it's not going to go anywhere? I think he's really hoping to debate the issue. During his announcement, he also had a presentation of his supporting evidence on why he thinks abortions should be banned after 15 weeks. How this bill mirrors what a lot of other countries are already following when it comes to abortion. So I think he wants to talk about it, debate it, and present his supporting evidence. Okay, so at the same time, California has launched a new website to help people get access to abortions. What kind of information does abortion.ca.gov provide? Yeah, it's kind of ironic that as this nationwide ban on abortions was being proposed, California launched a new abortion resource website available to all, no matter where you live. Here is California Governor Gavin Newsom talking about it. A resource for those seeking reproductive care, whether you live here or not. Abortion.ca.gov is now online. So what kind of information does uh, abortion.ca.gov include? You know, it's set up as a search engine where anyone can enter their location and find a provider closest to them. It also has financial resources, information about your rights for an abortion, and information in Spanish. And I I think the Spanish aspect of it and other languages could really help those that are worried about their legal status in the country and what is required for an abortion. In California, documentation is not needed for one, and this website has resources for anyone in the U.S. looking to get access to an abortion. 
And why does the governor say a website like this is needed? You know, California has been like a safe haven for women looking to get an abortion and supports reproductive rights. He says Republican states continue rolling back fundamental civil rights and even try to prevent people from accessing information online or crossing state lines for care. And with this website, you know, he's he's opening up access to anyone anywhere. California voters will actually be able to vote on abortion rights this November. What would the ballot measure do? You know, so that's Proposition 1, the Right to Reproductive Freedom Amendment. And it's an amendment that the state constitution would explicitly guarantee the right to an abortion and contraception. You know, the San Diego Board of Supervisors, along with other counties, have already shown their support for this proposition. No state so far has a constitutional provision protecting abortion. California, along with Vermont, could be the first states to see this in their constitution. I've been speaking with KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Tanya, thank you. Thank you. For business owners in Tijuana, having threats of violence levied against them and their families for money is a common occurrence. A new study from UCSD and researchers in Mexico finds extortion is more widespread than previously thought in Tijuana, and it's a major cause of violent crime. KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis has been covering this story and joins us. Gustavo, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. So first, paint the picture of what business owners in Tijuana are experiencing. Well, it's kind of like what you would imagine or what you would see from old uh, mob movies, right? It's personal. It's a a person, it's a goon or a henchman showing up in your store every couple of weeks or every month and asking, well, really not asking, but demanding to collect uh, protection money, they call it. Mostly happens in the eastern part of Tijuana, and the victims tend to be small to medium-sized businesses. But in terms of what it looks like, it's what you would imagine an extortion racket would look like, right? It's somebody going up to you and say, hey, you owe us X percent of what you make. And if you don't pay up, well, then we're going to have to get a little bit nasty with you. So so then researchers from UCSD in Mexico looked into this to find out how widespread this type of extortion is in Tijuana. What were their key takeaways? Yeah, they, they did. The, the interesting part about, about this research is that they did it the old-fashioned way. They just you know, hit the streets, door to door, knocking on businesses, talking with them. Uh, As you can imagine, nobody would fill out surveys when they first tried to do this study that way. So they had to actually be on the ground doing the work over there. And in terms of key takeaways, I mean, like you said in the intro, uh, one of the biggest ones is just how underreported this is. Uh, They said, uh, researchers say that fewer than 1% of extortion cases are actually reported to the authorities. It kind of leads to a second takeaway, which is that because there's no reporting, that the official stats are so low that there's no real public outcry about this. There's no recognition that this is an actual problem in Tijuana, and therefore there's no real political incentive to do anything about it. The third takeaway, which I think we might get to a little bit later, is how extortion escalates, right? Especially when businesses don't want to pay it. It goes from being this uh, quote-unquote invisible silent crime because it's so underreported to being a very visible violent crime, right? If you don't pay up, bad things will happen to, to you or your business or your family. So who's doing all of this extortion and why? The why is pretty simple, right? I think the why is because they can, <laughs> because they can get away with it, right? 
99% of it goes unreported. And when it is reported, business owners reported uh, or told researchers that there just isn't much done about it. They can report it to the police, but sometimes the police are in on it. They can report it to the state authorities. But again, I think we've talked about this in previous episodes, just the state of the judicial system in Mexico. When it comes to violent crime, less than 10% of crimes are actually prosecuted and, and the victim is, is taken to jail. And that's with violent crimes like homicide. So if you think about extortion, there's even less of a likely that, that the authorities, the judicial system is going to work in the favor. So in the terms of the why is because they can get away with it and there does not seem to be much consequences. Now, in terms of the who... It was interesting because the answer is is not what you would typically expect, right? When we hear about crime in Mexico, we automatically assume, oh, the cartels are behind it. What the researchers found is that this is done by really small, hyper-local bands of, of criminal organizations. They're basically an extortion ring of somebody who, who extorts businesses within a two, three block radius. And that's kind of their territory. Uh, they know everything about the business owner, where they live, where their kids go to school, how much money they make. In many cases, they have access to the financials. So they know exactly how much they can extort from a business without you know, shutting it down, without extorting too much and forcing that business to close. Uh, so because it's so hyper-local, because everybody knows everybody in these communities, they just have a high degree of information that they can use against their victims. And as you mentioned, in this study, extortion is described as an invisible crime, but that can quickly change, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, especially when you don't pay, right? And and kind of like back to what I was saying about the old mobster movies, right? What happens to businesses that refuse to pay their protection payment? Um, at first, somebody will show up and start breaking you know, merchandise or breaking the windows or the doors to the store, but it quickly escalates to arson, to physical violence, uh, to murder, and not just murder of the individual store owner, but murder of, of their entire families as well. So what the researchers were, were kind of suggesting or, or, or proposing was that if you want to tackle more, quote unquote, serious visible crimes, it might be a good idea to start with extortion because that's kind of where some of these crimes begin. So if you tackle extortion, it won't get to the level of arson and kidnapping and murder. In your reporting, you point out that there doesn't seem to be any political will to stop this problem. You mentioned it before. I mean, why is that? So the researchers that worked on this project actually went to politicians in, in the state level and the municipal level of Tijuana trying to come up with policy solutions to the extortion issue. And what they faced, what they came across was just this lack of care. Politicians would just straight up tell them, like, look, it's not an issue. The numbers aren't that high. My constituents don't care about it. Why would I invest my time, money, and resources into fighting an issue that the public doesn't even really care about? It'd be better, it'd be more prudent, politically speaking for me, to champion issues like homicide, like violence against women, like like migrant right issues. But with extortion, just politically speaking, it doesn't really move the needle one way or another. So there really, like I said, is no incentive to tackle the issue. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you, Jade. I really appreciate it.
3D printing has brought innovation and flexibility to the creation of goods that was never possible in traditional factories. KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge has the story. Walk onto the factory floor of Incept3D in Mira Mesa and you hear the low din of machines and you see there are more than 100 3D printers in action. They're making everything from replicas of human bones to housings for electronics and tap handles for San Diego breweries. It's basically a very sophisticated hot glue gun. Company founder and CEO Michael Armbruster explains the process as he points to a roll of thermoplastic cord on a 3D printer. You've got filament that goes up through a tube and it comes out of this very tiny nozzle. The 3D printer will then travel along the X and Y plane depositing that filament onto the part, and that's in a nutshell how 3D printing works. The printer nozzle darts across the object, making, in this case, the model of a mold for a cement structure. Some objects are made in 24 hours, some are made overnight. Armbruster says he got hooked on 3D printers 10 years ago because he loved making things and immediately saw the potential of 3D printing. I was just blown away that this technology completely disregards complexity as a challenge. The machines simply don't care. You can then build any shape. He says 3D printing is great as long as you are making a diversity of products or small volumes of the same thing. They cannot compete with conventional manufacturing when you want to make 10,000 identical items. Factories using predetermined molds can punch out product a lot faster. Carolyn Freund is an economist at UCSD who is dean of the School of Global Policy and Strategy. She has studied how 3D printing has affected trade, and she says it has increased international trade among those products that are commonly printed. She says 3D printing excels at the innovation end of product creation. 3D printing allows you to design many, many, many different parts and components and then test them out. So you can find which one works the best and then use that one for your mass production. And then there are products where every one of them needs to be a little bit different. Because you can literally scan whatever you need and then individualize that product. So a really good example is in hearing aids where you can scan the cavity of someone's ear and create a product that uniquely fits that ear. Another example of that is making artificial limbs, which is what San Diego-based Limber Prosthetics and Orthotics does. UCSD engineering doctoral student Joshua Pels is the CEO of Limber P&O. He holds out an artificial lower leg made of cream-colored plastic. This is the Limber Unileg. It is a single-piece prosthesis that is 3D printed in just half of a day. So you press start at the night, and you pull it off looking just like this in the morning, ready to go onto an amputee, allowing them to get back out into the world. Back at Incept3D, Michael Armbruster shows me the printed spine of a young child based on CT scans from a children's hospital. They're preparing for a surgery on the child. Armbruster says while 3D printing seems very innovative, it's not new technology. So why the recent explosion in its use? Expiring patents have totally changed the industry. It was this tiny little market that only the most high-end people would use. Then some patents expired, some big ones, the ones that allow for all of this. 
There are new uses for 3D printing. In medicine, organic printing of some body parts, like heart valves, is in development. Some construction companies are beginning to make 3D-printed houses. It works off a computer program, of course, but their printer pours cement. Thomas Fudge, KPBS News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Come fall in love. The DDLJ musical is the next big Broadway-bound show, getting its roots in San Diego. The Old Globe officially opens the production tonight. It's an adaptation of a beloved 1995 Hindi-language rom-com musical known widely by its initials DDLJ. It's the story of Simran, who is a young Indian-American woman with an arranged marriage awaiting her in India. Before she goes through with it, she sets out on a summer trip across Europe where she meets someone else. The stage adaptation is by prolific Broadway lyricist Nell Benjamin and the Mumbai-based musical duo known as Vishal and Shekhar, who wrote new music for the play. Here's a taste of their work. Vishal and Shekhar spoke with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans, and here's their conversation. So before we dig into your role on this play, can you give our listeners a sense for the story and why this original film has been so enduring and so beloved? Come Fall in Love, the musical, is based on, or is rather an adaptation of uh, an Indian film called uh, popularly known as DDLJ, which is a seminal uh, film in the in the history of the Indian film industry, a film that has transcended being a uh, story and become sort of part of the fabric of modern Indian culture. Uh, why this happened, I think, is because of the beauty of the love story and the fact that the, the at the core, the film talks about the commonality of human emotion. The film itself is about the fact that uh, that people are people. And the musical is about that as well. It's about, you know, unifying people from across various backgrounds. It's about uh, about the meeting of cultures through the love of two young people. Within a few minutes of, of starting to watch the musical, it's your story. You know, wherever you're from and whatever your back, background is, it's your story. So that's, I think, why people relate to it so strongly. Thanks, Vishal. Uh, Shekhar, I'm wondering what your own background is with the original film, whether you'd grown up watching it, and 
and maybe how that shaped your approach to penning new music. So I think there's, it's, it's very rare to find anyone who's not a big fan of this film. Uh, this film came out in the year 1995. And I remember going and watching this film with my wife. Um, and I was 19 years old when I went to see this film. And um, uh, it just became an iconic love story. And like every single dialogue used to be discussed. And still it's been talked about. Every character are spoken about even today. Um, every line, every dialogue, every uh, comic, uh, you know, uh, moment is e- even used in everyday's uh, banter, even now. This movie is still in the theatres right now. And uh, when Adi kind of offered us this, this script, we were very excited and very thrilled because all the memories of the songs, all the memories of uh, the dialogues, the characters in the film, and it just, you know, took us a little time to, you know, figure out how to disconnect from the film because this is a totally new adaptation altogether. And for Vishal and I, we kind of you know, immediately jumped into, you know, what Nell had written. Nell has written, uh, she's, the, she's the author and, uh, you know, the writer for Come Fall in Love. So she'd written all the songs down um, in, in this entire book. And then we kind of started making music. And, and you know, and we realized that something really, really cool. We have 18 new, brand new English songs, which we've composed uh, in uh, Come Fall in Love. And um, the movie has, I think, five or six songs, which are very, very popular. But we've made 18 new songs for Come Fall in Love. And Vishal, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what are some of the elements or the songs that have been maintained from that original movie? I just want to say that there are hat tips to the songs from the film because we are fans as well, but they don't feature as songs as they feature as, as much as they feature as transitions and moments that really the audience really explodes with joy when they, when they, when they find these little Easter eggs that we've popped into the, you know, the underscores or the, or the storytelling. I think it's magical to see that. It's magical to see the effect that uh, that uh, you know that nostalgia still has on our audiences, and it's also magical to see that that we're able to give them an entirely new story with entirely new music and just hints of the original uh, songs, and and it all works as one because of the universality of the story itself of Come Fall in Love. Vishal, on the flip side. I'm wondering what you can tell us uh, are the biggest things that have changed in this in this adaptation. Oh, absolutely. The fundamental thing is that this is now a story of the meeting of two cultures. So it's, it's the story of the American culture as well as the Indian culture or the Indian-American culture meeting through the love of these two characters, uh, Roger Mandel uh, and Simran Singh. And they, um, for whatever it's worth, that in itself is a major change. There's also entirely new music. The songs are very celebratory. India is a huge character in this show. India is right up front and center. Um, you know, um, Shekhar and I, uh, when we set out to do this, we uh, one of the one of the fundamental things we really wanted to 
sort of have running as a thread through all of it was that uh, anyone who watches it if you if you're south asian and you watch it you feel like you're home and you feel like you want to go home you know you feel like you want to reconnect with your roots and if you're not south asian you feel all the same things but you want to reach out and 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 learn more about india you want to, or or south asia you want to be part of that culture of that sound of that music of that of the colors and the joy and the the magic uh, the vivacity of that that part of the world so the film was a story of uh, you know an an indian boy and an nri girl but it was conceived as this story by adi when he was a, a young writer writing his first film what he wanted to make was a story of an uh, you know uh, of of the love between an american boy and an indian american girl and and tell of the meeting of the two cultures and both cultures finding understanding and shekhar have you had any pushback from big fans of the original uh, what has the reception been like so far oh my reception has been absolutely brilliant um <laughs> I, we've actually in the last uh, last about 11 to t- last 12 previews the reaction has been it's 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 very weird but the reaction has been that we like this better than the film so and 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 a lot of south asian people coming in and them actually uh, you know reacting like this that is better than the film gives us even more uh, you know joy and confidence that yes we are doing something right uh and for a lot of uh, you know uh, non south asian people who are coming to watch the show they are planning their next visit to india and kind of really want to kind of know more about our our colors our festival our people our culture our food all of it so i think um it's it's is going really well and we can't wait for you know the show to kind of open So Vishal I wanted to shift gears and talk a little bit about your career and the work you've done so far uh composing and producing music across many genres. Um you've also written for a lot of movies. Uh how was this project different than writing film music for Hindi cinema? Well I mean uh, this is something that we started uh, literally when the world shut down because of covid. uh we were all having a tough time everyone was having a tough time and uh, and staying level in that time was quite difficult this is the project that uh, that kept us sane kept us connected uh kept us level and uh, you know while we were all in different locations shekhar and i were in different locations uh, adi was in a third location in india and uh, nel was of course in new york and we were you know we were connected by zoom and working on this uh, magical piece of storytelling and i think that's what brought us some joy we've done uh, as shekhar said 65 or 70 films 350 or 400 songs uh, most i mean pretty much 99.5% of that would be in hindi and uh, this for us was an opportunity to showcase vishal and shekhar's songwriting to an entirely new audience in an entirely new medium and an entirely new language as well so uh, very very exciting for us uh, a huge challenge because uh, obviously anything based on ddlj also uh, you know has to uh, bear in mind that the the original is so iconic you don't want to mess with that you want to you want to get it right you want to go a step further a step uh, sort of uh, ahead and i think the primary function of the music was to bring come fall in love to the people as their story which is what we've tried to do 
Vishal, Shekhar, thank you so much. Thank you for having us, Julia. That was Vishal and Shekhar speaking with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Come Fall in Love, the DDLJ musical, opens tonight at the Old Globe and is on stage through October 16th. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.